0: A Japanese on
1: with a an Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Oldwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be looking at the topic of the mythos as religion. Before we go on to that, What have you been up to, Matt? Yeah, we've been playtesting a new Cthulhu by Gaslight scenario at
2: the MKRPG club, courtesy of uh, Matt not running it for us, uh, our long-suffering keeper there. Uh, What was going to be a a one-week scenario turned into three weeks, because we we did what investigators do. We procrastinated and went down every possible wrong alley that we could.
1: It is quite a short evening at the club, though, isn't it? I mean, it's three hours maximum, and by the time (laughs) you've settled in and chatted a bit, it's like... Maybe two and a half hours of actual game time. Yeah, and done the votes for the long block as yeah. well. And,
0: yeah. But also when you're playtesting, you do want groups to do stuff like that. You want them to go off at funny tangents, you want them to do the unexpected. I think a, a nice short, neat playtest would probably have be been the worst possible thing that could have happened.
2: Oh I mean, true, there is there's definitely that. And we we did come up with some inventive ways to get round all of the bad shit that was going to be thrown at us. So Earplugs—they're wonderful things.
1: <laughs> and this is for a forthcoming Chaosium
2: book, right? Yes, indeed it is. So I'll be look, looking forward to seeing that in print and seeing how they've. Uh, yeah, how they've taken taken our feedback on, <laughs> on various parts. <laughs> Do you think your 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 playthrough might change some things? That's definitely definitely brought up a couple of research
0: points. Okay, that's good. That's good. And we're also progressing quite nicely on the Blasphemous Tome Issue 3 now. Uh, We've had some cover art in, uh, which looks absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I think by the time this episode goes out, we can probably put a mock-up of the cover up on the website. Oh, almost certainly, yeah. yeah. One of the differences this time is that we're actually licensed by Chaosium, so we can actually include stats. So we're doing a proper... I was about to say Call of Cthulhu scenario, but we're doing a pulp Cthulhu scenario, this, this issue... This Pulp Cthulhu scenario is your creation, Scott, and
1: Matt and myself are adding a few bits in, but entitled A New Age of Wonders, a scenario set in the 1930s, America. I don't know if we need to say more than that. It's pulp action and intrigue. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I've run it at quite a lot of conventions and it seems to go well. So, yeah, it's it's nice to have an excuse to write it up. Hmm.
1: And in a few days after this episode goes out, on the 2nd of December... There is Dragon Meet, the gaming convention that takes place in London. And as far as I know, all three of us should be there. So if you're also there, then please do find us and say hi. I can't believe that's
0: a year again now. Almost. Fly flies around far it too does. quick. And of course, the other thing that happened recently was the annual Fricka Halloween party. Which, obviously, we all attended, and, um, well, I, I don't know about you two, I, I've just about finished getting rid of the last traces of my costume now a week late. <laughs>
2: oh, that's a good point. I was going to say, where did all the green go? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll post some pictures. Well, a
1: picture.
0: Yeah, yeah, a <laughs> picture, because happily, I think only one exists. Yeah, I think so.
1: Not many people took photographs that night, which is surprising.
0: But, but your costume caused real
1: confusion, didn't it, Paul? It did. Is it a penguin? <laughs> is it a fish? No, it's Octoman <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, I, I still really don't know what to make of that costume At any point, Matt, did you look at that costume and think That's an octopus
2: No, I think my initial reaction and my reaction throughout the evening was What the fuck?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, I, I'm, I'm sorry, you look like a sequin dildo with eyes stuck on your forehead
2: What, now or then? <laughs> oh, yes Okay <laughs> And now, the Lovecraftian Word of the Week. And this week our word is... I should just leave a blank space here, really, shouldn't I? Because it is ineffable. It's an adjective. One. Too great or intense to be expressed in words. Unutterable. Two. Too sacred to be uttered three indescribable indefinable
1: well indescribable we all know that's a very lovecraftian term and this is how he seems to adopt the word ineffable i think to sort of say something is you know indescribable
0: Yeah, and that struck me as being really quite interesting. We we see this quite a lot with Lovecraft and some of his word choices, that he takes these words like ineffable, which in most uses has some kind of religious connotation to it, and uses it in an almost entirely secular manner. I can't think of a single example from when I look through Lovecraft's fiction for for uses of this word, where it was used in a religious way. I think it's, again, one of these words that he used because he liked the sound of it, because it had an archaic, grandiose, uh, and and rather poetic side to it, rather than because it was religious.
2: I do wonder, because one of the things that Scott's pointed out is that um, it was only used seven times in Lovecraft's main fiction, um, how many of those times did he truly just leave it at that and say this is something that is ineffable rather uh, than saying, oh, this is indescribable, But here, here's its features?
0: No, he, he didn't really use it in that term at all. Uh, he used it as an adjective basically to add a, 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 an element of mystery or, or wonder to something. Uh, we'll see in a moment when we go through our readings, but it wasn't just a question of, oh, this thing's ineffable, let's not describe it. It was just part of the, the colour of the language he used.
1: So now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word
0: ineffable in his writings. From he. So instead of the poems I had hoped for, there came only a shuddering blankness and ineffable loneliness. And I saw at last a fearful truth which no one had ever dared to breathe before. The unwisperable secret of secrets... The fact that this city of stone and strider is not a sentient perpetuation of old New York as London is of old London and Paris of old Paris, but that it is in fact quite dead, its sprawling body imperfectly embalmed and infested with queer animate things which have nothing to do with it as it was in life.
2: And from At the Mountains of Madness... That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and aeon-long death of this untrodden and unfathomed, austral
1: world. And from The Thing on the Doorstep. This was the person who had driven my car through the night five months before the person I had not seen since that brief call when he had forgotten the old-time doorbell signal and stirred such nebulous fears in me. And now he filled me with the same dim feeling of blasphemous alienage and ineffable cosmic hideousness.
2: And now on to our main topic, the mythos as religion.
0: Way back in episode 67, we talked about the idea of gods in Lovecraft and in Call of Cthulhu and thought about what might cause people to be drawn to worship these alien entities – And we thought it'd be interesting to approach this again from perhaps a slightly different angle, looking at the common factors that define religions and thinking about how those might map on to this kind of worship of the great old ones and of of these horrors from beyond space and time.
1: Yeah, I think beyond just thinking of the... People as cultists, as we regularly do in Call of Cthulhu. It's a very simplistic way of looking at them. If we think of them not as just crazed cultists in robes running around stabbing people, you know, make them more three dimensional and actually think of them as a religion, what does that bring to the table? Cultists have feelings or
2: say religious feelings too.
0: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> And one thing we're going to try to do in this episode, and we'll undoubtedly totally fail at, but it's our intention, is to try to move away from using the words cults and cultists when describing these, these mythos religions, and perhaps you know use more neutral terms like sects and worshippers. But we'll talk a little bit about what defines a cult as opposed to a religion, to try to explain why we'll do that.
1: Because we want to be more inclusive, right? Yeah, that's it. And more engaging and, and accepting of our brothers in
0: Cthulhu. But there's also the fact that... The word "cult" is used really as as a very dismissive thing. As soon as you refer to a religion or a sect as a cult, then you know, it's a pejorative term. You're, you're you're saying an awful lot about them in that one little word. And this may be entirely fair with Lovecraftian cults, but if we're looking at them, you know, through a new lens, then you know, perhaps trying to break away from that might give us a bit more latitude.
1: And equally, in this episode, I think we're going to try to steer away from saying anything that would denigrate any real world religions as well so we're going to try and I mean religion is one of those topics that one is not supposed to discuss at dinner parties along with politics and and whatever else but you know we are going to try and delve into religion in this episode there's an easy question that starts all this off what is religion
0: We could fill up the next hour just trying to (laughs) define this. There is no real one-size-fits-all description of what a religion is. Paul and I had a discussion uh, yesterday when we were going through the show notes where we were trying to find decent descriptions. And Paul found a a very succinct, nice dictionary definition. It was elegant, but it excluded, I think, about half of the world's religions. It placed the the worship of a supreme being at the centre of it. Religions are far more complicated than that. I mean, there are religions that have got no deities in them at all, like uh, Buddhism. There are uh, polytheistic religions. There are animistic religions. But if
1: we're to discuss the mythos as a religion, I suppose what I was driving at was that we need to have some sort of consensus on what the term is religion that we're actually going to use, what we
0: mean by that. Yeah, and the best definition I found, or rather the most inclusive one, was uh, one that uh, another website had quoted as being from Wikipedia, which doesn't actually seem to be on Wikipedia anymore, but it's still a fairly elegant description. A system of social coherence based on a common group of beliefs or attitudes
2: concerning an object, person, unseen being, or a system of thought considered to be supernatural, sacred, divine, or highest truth, and the moral codes, practices, values, institutions, traditions and rituals associated with such belief or system of thought. My God, that's almost as long as a Lovecraft sentence. It is, yeah. <laughs> Except yeah. so it's got yeah. more commas.
0: <laughs> and I'm sure even with that attempt to cover all the bases, mm-hmm. you could, if you put your mind to it, find at least one you know, real religion out there that doesn't fit that.
1: But what common things do we think, in terms of what our discussion, are common to a religion?
0: Yeah, as they say, you know, a common system of beliefs or practices, I, I think, seems to be at the core there. One of the major world religions is Buddhism, and as I mentioned before, I mean that doesn't really fit the mold of a lot of what we think of as religion,
2: especially considering there's so many different variations of it as well.
0: Yeah, and that really complicates things because there are versions of Buddhism that are, you know, animistic, that are deistic, but you know, at its core, it's fundamentally a philosophy and a series of practices.
1: I think what you just said there about there being lots of different branches of Buddhism, I think we see that in pretty much every religion. There are lots and lots of varieties of Christianity, of Islam, of well, certainly of the major religions and probably even the the, the lesser widely known religions. That's something we should probably think about in terms of the Cthulhu cult. We tend to think of it as this big one cohesive thing. Would it be? Probably not. Probably lots of little branches all disagreeing (laughs) with each other.
0: But there are plenty of of common factors like this that define uh, religions or different aspects of religions. And what we've done for the second part of this discussion is broken those down. Um, Our goal is to examine at least a fair number of them and talk about what they might represent in, in a mythos context.
2: We've mentioned a word that we said we want to steer away from a little, but cult and religion. What's the difference?
1: Yeah, I think we do have to address what a cult is. And it's a word that now, I think, is largely seen as a a negative term, a pejorative term. Uh, If somebody's religion is is termed as a cult, then they're not going to take to that very kindly, I think.
0: But that pejorative use of the word cult didn't really come until the 20th century. Because before then, you had, I mean, for example, cults within Catholicism that were uh, uh, organised around certain saints. And this wasn't considered to be a bad thing. Um, this whole idea of you know, of cults being these you know small insular little units filled with mad people is, I think, largely a twentieth century um, uh, concept.
2: It does seem that there's a certain progression over the course of time, numbers and so forth. To say that you start as a cult and eventually grow up to become a religion.
0: Yeah, and there is a a quote that I came across, and I couldn't find an attribution for it, but which sums it up very nicely, which is, a religion is an old cult, a cult is a new religious movement.
1: The word cult also suggests a smaller subset within a broader society that suggests that the cult is somewhat outside of the regular society. So there's the established religion, and then there's this cult up the road. You know, Counter- that, Counterculture, in a way. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, both social isolation and uh, a form of, I suppose, dogmatic isolation, that they believe fundamentally different things than the larger society. There's a yeah. certain intenseness as well
2: that's kind of associated with cult. Religion, you see, is, oh, it's all nice, sit down in a church or other place of religious worship, everything's quite laid back in a sense but cold is more intense more well i think you're
0: speaking very church i was was about to say if people couldn't tell by your accent that you were english that would give you away because yeah yeah, i I think there are plenty of, of churches and and mainstream religious temples around the world which are really quite fervid in their worship Mm. Uh, so yeah, that whole idea of sort of sitting there politely and quietly during the service—that's that's about as English as you get. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Playing cards at the back of the church hall. Mm. There's also an issue of size. A bit like as Paul said, that you've got the you know, the religion that dominates the town and this small little group out on the um, out on the outskirts or in the suburbs. That there's definitely a matter of size here. Although the Cthulhu cult has per Lovecraft's original original text is this vast conspiracy that spans the globe almost but is it yeah. loads
1: of people there are there it's dotted around the globe but I'm not given the impression that it's a huge cult
0: yeah it's it, been around it, a long time and It certainly doesn't seem to be a small isolated thing, but... No. Yeah, this may be something we can come back to later, but, yeah, is there one Cthulhu cult? Or is it like lots of different cults that share common beliefs and and common values and practices? Uh, it's, It's difficult to say.
1: Typically, a cult has a cult leader. So somebody who's very charismatic, who carries the cult forwards... And there's a, a hierarchical structure within the cult. And quite commonly, when this charismatic leader dies, there's a, a schism within the cult, there's a division, there's a, a reformation of the cult. Um, such things have been sort of common. Uh, among numerous cults that we've seen in the 20th
0: century. And this may be the point at which the cult almost becomes a religion as well, that once it moves away from being that cult of personality, then it has to adapt and change and perhaps you know, start getting some of that respectability that, that makes it more of a mainstream religion. I think there's also the perception that in cults there is much more of an emphasis on social control controlling every aspect of the lives of their uh, their followers there being harsh penalties for heresy blasphemy apostasy we do see this in you know in world religions but it is perhaps more of a feature of cults it's certainly, you know, not the case that every world religion, you know, stones its apostates. In this day and age it's a fairly rare thing for that to happen. It does happen, but you know, it's it's rare. And cults aren't necessarily
1: religious. They can form around personalities or political movements or philosophies. So one we might pick here from real life would be David Icke. Are his followers could they be branded as a cult? I don't know.
0: Yeah I think Ike is an interesting example I think perhaps a more extreme one that that emphasizes this will probably be Charles Manson that he had this, this cult of, of young people, particularly women, who, who followed him, who did his biddings, that he told them, you know, bizarre political things um, about an upcoming race war and was trying to uh, sort of stoke up the fires of this, that what he saw as this inevitable war. But, you know, for, for his own personal purposes, but it behaved almost entirely like a religious cult, but there wasn't really much of a religious element there.
2: Now there's a fantastic thing that I'd never heard of that Scott's pointed out, called the Cult Information Center. Do you want to give us a bit of background on this before we go into this? Is this where you ring up? <laughs>
1: I want to join a cult. But yeah. I don't know where to start.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I don't know a hell of a lot about them. I had to check that they weren't the same thing as the Cult Awareness Network, because the Cult Awareness Network did a very similar thing, that they started out as an organisation that tried to give people warnings about the dangers of cults and getting involved with them. But the Cult Awareness Network ended up being bought out or subsumed into the Church of Scientology, and as a result, the advice they give now is perhaps not exactly the same as the advice they used to give. But the the Cult Information Centre, unless anyone knows differently, seems to be a bit more um, neutral, shall I say? The Cult
2: Information Centre uses the following five identifiers to describe a cult 1. It uses psychological coercion to recruit, indoctrinate and retain its members 2. It forms an elitist totalitarian society 3. Its founder leader is self-appointed, dogmatic, messianic, not accountable and has charisma Four, it believes the ends justify the means in order to solicit funds and recruit people. Five,
0: its wealth does not benefit its members or society. I think this is an interesting series of definitions of a cult. If we're looking at this from a mythos point of view, I mean, the, the sects that we see in Call of Cthulhu, if we look at them through you know the, this checklist, the majority of these points probably wouldn't apply because... They're not necessarily about the accumulation of wealth, for example, whereas it seems that a number of of real-world cults are fundamentally about the power and enrichment, or perhaps even the sexual appetites of its founders.
2: I might, to some extent, in a little bit of a flippant way, go against the acquisition of wealth, because all the groups that we see in Cthulhu, with all their robes and knives, they don't just mystically appear, they have to go out and buy them or make them, there has to be some kind of fund that builds them. This, there's actually something that comes up in the ESA terrorists that there is a funding network that organises activities worldwide, so money is quite an intrinsic part to any operation that retri- uh, that
0: needs materialistic goods in order to conduct its activities. And that actually sort of opens up some interesting, unusual aspects to investigation in a Call of Cthulhu game. You're trying to work out where, as sects or an organisation's finances come from. You could almost end up with an investigator group that takes on the role of uh, the IRS in in the Capone case, where they're trying to save the world not through Tommy Guns and Dynamite, but through accountancy.
1: They get Cthulhu through tax evasion. (laughs)
0: I, I'd say really it probably counts as an offshore tax haven. I think real-world cults are such a rich vein of inspiration for Call of Cthulhu, though, that we should probably come back to that in a, a later episode, taking some examples of, of real cults and talking about how we can base Cthulhu cults on them or take aspects of them and and use them to make our games more interesting. But that, that's not really what we're going to try to do this episode.
1: Now, as discussed, how can we look at mythos sects as religions?
0: Well, first of all, do we actually see the, the sects in Call of Cthulhu and in Lovecraft as being religions?
2: If not religions, definitely religious. They're sharing a lot of parallels between how we would see a religion work in the real world compared to how they're
1: described in the fiction. I think for me, when I first started playing Call of Cthulhu and I got the book and I started reading it and reading some of the scenarios, what I found was this great wealth of cultists. And I was like, where are all these cultists coming from? Because having read some Lovecraft stories, there's not much representation of cultists in those stories. They're hidden. They're everywhere. Well, are they, though? But we see yeah. them in the Call of Cthulhu to some degree. We see them in the, in the swamps. We have reference to them on the on the ship, in the alert. We see a little bit of them in other stories, but they're not. They don't feature very heavily in Lovecraft stories, would you say?
2: No. There are numerous ones, though. You've got the Church of the Starry Wisdom. You've got the Esoteric Order of Dagon.
1: There's yeah. again, there's lots of different sects. But they're they're mentioned and they feature in a handful of stories, but they're not like in in most of the scenarios.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're talking about three stories out of Lovecraft's canon there, as opposed to, you know, the vast majority of Call of Cthulhu scenarios which involve cults or cultists. I think you're right. It's interesting that that's become so much of the focus of Call of Cthulhu. My personal opinion is that it presents a human-level survivable form of opposition that uh, investigators can go up against. More than that, they can go up against them on, on a protracted basis. These, these are organisations that insinuate themselves into the larger society. And encountering them is a gradual progressive thing, much more so than, say, encountering a hunting horror a level one encounter.
1: And the other thing I find with the cultists in Call of Cthulhu is they seem quite simple. They're a bunch of crazed people who are trying to bring about the end of the world.
0: Yeah. They yeah. never
1: seem like a rounded religion that could just be going on for centuries, perhaps, and following regular lives, but doing this as, you know, that that's their religion.
0: Yeah, again, yeah, th- this isn't necessarily something we even see in Lovecraft. I mean, you mentioned the Starry of Wisdom. Yeah, the Starry of Wisdom don't seem to be trying to bring about the end of the world. The Steric Order of Dagon, they're fundamentally about keeping the Deep One bloodlines alive and spreading them. Even the Cthulhu cult, they don't necessarily seem to be trying to bring about the end of the world.
1: They're paving
0: the some, way. Yeah. Well, You're,
1: they're keeping the exposure of Cthulhu secret really that every everybody who finds out about it seems to meet a bad end at their hands yeah their objective seems to be one of secrecy but at the same time they're kind of the custodians of the knowledge and eventually when the stars come right they they will seek to open the portals and and so on and help cthulhu from his tomb but that's kind of an eventual thing it's a bit like the day of judgment it's an eventual thing that will happen one day
0: This whole idea of cultists just being a bunch of mad people who get together and summon up monsters and gods does seem to be very much a Call of Cthulhu thing. What we have in mind is that next episode, we'll do a follow-up to this, where we build upon some of these ideas and look at particular cults or, you know, the, the cults that come out of Lovecraft and try to find ways of of reinventing them, of presenting more rounded, more interesting cults. But I think, you know, for this episode, what we're going to concentrate on for the rest of it is looking at these different aspects of religion and how they might inform such a thing, giving us the groundwork for that, that subsequent discussion.
2: Now, looking at the parallels between regular religions and the sects of the mythos, one of the key things that a lot of them share, not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them have a certain degree of faith that there is a belief without necessarily proof of existence of what they're worshipping. the, The thing that gets me with faith and specifically in connection with the mythos is that a lot of these sects, many of them will actually meet the things that they're worshipping, such as they will call down Yogg-Sothoth from the sky, they will raise Dagon from the depths. They see and they know and they have tangible proof that this thing exists. Where does that line get drawn between
1: faith in something they don't know about and something they can reach out and touch? But perhaps the fact that they have seen a a deep one or a a, a dark young of Shobnigarath or something like that. Yes, those individuals have had first-hand experience. They know those things exist. But still, their faith in what their destiny is or what's going to become of them or in the wider cosmos, there are people who would testify to having witnessed angels. Do they still have faith?
2: Mm, I'd question that if you still have faith, then there must be a certain degree of questioning. Do they believe what they've actually seen as an angel? If they still have faith, in inverted commas wouldn't that just turn into belief or categoric proof of their
0: existence? Well, no, because, I mean, let's take perhaps a you know a slightly different example, near-death experiences. So you have someone who has died on the operating table or in a car crash, who has gone through that white tunnel, they've seen their loved ones at the other end, they've had some experience of the ineffable or the divine there, but they've been resuscitated, brought back, and they believe that they have seen proof of the afterlife. I would have thought for most people, there's always going to be that that element of doubt of, you know, did that really happen? Was that just a, a neurological or chemical reaction in my brain? You know, certainly other people may tell them that and that may introduce an element of doubt. Is not something that they can pick up and show to other people and and offer as categorical proof i would have thought perhaps a lot of encounters with the mythos might be like that that yes you're told that you know cthulhu sleeps beneath the waves and for proof you're you're taken to the hysterical order of dagon and you you meet a deep one but you know without taking that deep one round and introducing it to your friends you you might go home afterwards and sort of say i've seen the light i i understand it all now and then people you know start sort of saying yeah are you sure it wasn't just a guy in the suit? You know, did, did did they slip you some LSD? Did you hallucinate the whole thing? Are, are you absolutely sure it was real?
2: Yeah, that's still that that individual person who has had that experience has still seen what they've seen. It's others that then plant the seed of doubt.
0: Well, I, I I don't know. I think people are perfectly capable of planting that seed of doubt within themselves as well. There are plenty of things that have happened within my life that you know, seem to have some sort of spiritual or magical essence at the time, where, you know, afterwards, when I've had more time to think about them, I've, I've really come to doubt.
1: But I guess your, your point was that if you've had first-hand experience of a mythos entity, do you need faith? From my perspective, at least, I would say if I'd seen the face of God and I knew physically what I had seen,
2: then I wouldn't have faith anymore. I would have categorical proof and knowledge. But does that make you less religious? Well, I'm not religious at all. But that's a different that's a different uh, discussion. <laughs> no, but would it make <laughs> one less religious? I'd, I'd say it gives them a drive. It gives them a different outlook. But specific faith, as per how I see it, is a belief or wanting that some you want something to exist, but you don't have physical proof of its existence. But when you are confronted with that proof, it just moves you onto a different state of thinking.
0: There's more in faith, though, than just does God exist or do gods exist. A big part of a lot of religions revolves around what happens when we die. I don't think I've seen too much of this explored in, well, certainly not in Lovecraft, perhaps a little bit in Call of Cthulhu, but not too much.
2: I think the only real aspect of what happens after you die is addressed with the the dreamlands, especially that some dreamers of particular skill... Um, that when their earthly shell dies, they can project their consciousness into the dreamlands and live on there. Or perhaps turn into ghouls for, um, on a somewhat tangential aspect. That That's more of a physical transformation.
0: Yeah, that's more surviving death than you know, what mm-hmm. happens after. Yeah. I think one
1: of the faults of us as game designers is perhaps that we look for what actually happens to the people in the fiction rather than what they might think is going to happen to them. Mm. So yes, some of them might survive into the dreamlands, or some of them might not die, but transform into ghouls. But those cultists of Cthulhu, when Cthulhu rises, we, Matt, Scott, and myself, probably think within the fiction, all those cultists are going to be stomped on and eaten by Cthulhu, right? But the cultists might well think that by being consumed by Cthulhu, they're going to live forever as part of Cthulhu, or they're going to bodily moved down to Rillier, which is a fantastic temple like heaven. Uh, Or they might think that, you know, their souls are transformed into deep ones or whatever. Who knows,
0: right? The the, the very laws of time and space break down and that death no longer actually becomes relevant.
2: They join the ranks of the great old ones.
0: Yeah, I mean, who
1: knows? I mean, again, taking inspiration from the real world, there are all sorts of opinions as Mm. to what happens in the afterlife. So there's no consensus on that. So they can't, in the real world, everybody can't be right. So why should the Cthulhu cultists be right in what they believe about the afterlife? There is the thing of imbuing Cthulhu cultists with knowledge which is correct within the game world. Yes. And I don't see why that should be right. They they haven't got a direct conduit even to Cthulhu, really. They get what, occasional dream sendings, maybe, that make some artist make a crazy sculpture, and it's not exactly enlightening, is it? That's one one thing I love doing with these cult leaders, that
2: they've been given a message or that they've interpreted something and mm. they've got it really badly
1: wrong. Yeah. So I think as far as faith goes, we can take inspiration from real-world religions in that their faith may be even a relatively benevolent one. It may be that they think that people's lives would be better if they embrace Cthulhu. And, but they've kind of learned that they can't go around telling everybody that because they'll be ostracised perhaps, but maybe they do it in a more subtle way.
0: And of course another unique aspect of, of Cthulhu sects, or you know sects in Call of Cthulhu, is the fact that not all of the celebrants are going to be human there's got to be some unique perspectives there that a human being having faith in in Cthulhu because they've been touched by his dreams is going to have a very different experience of faith than a Deep One or a Deep One hybrid who potentially has the blood of Cthulhu or his relatives running through his veins.
1: Well, they a very different worldview, right? So yeah. we definitely see this in Lovecraft's stories that the Deep Ones worship Cthulhu or Dagon or Mother Hydra, that the Mego worship Shabnigarath, and perhaps with the human beings, you know, they do rituals together and worship together. The thing is, it's not just humans that we're talking about here with the religion, but it's also the mythos entities, or the lesser ones. And even Cthulhu himself is a priest, right? Now, another thing a lot of religions try to do, and
2: they do do in their own way, uh, provide answers to some of the big questions, like... What is the meaning of life? Obviously, we know it's 42, but there are other answers. Or, where did the universe come from? Yeah, Azathoth. Yeah, go figure, we all know that one. But there are so many different answers that the different religions provide to these big fundamental questions that most people in their life will come up with.
0: And I think there's the danger in Call of Cthulhu, I mean, sort of building on something Paul was saying earlier, that because we've got almost an established canon and timeline of, you know, this is where humanity came from, this is where the different gods came from, and so on, that we can almost go back within the mythos and sort of give categorical answers to these. For a start, I think it's a mistake doing that in Call of Cthulhu in general because it's it's very reductive and dull. But I think from the point of view of of mythos sects, why shouldn't they all have vastly different opinions? I mean, it's not even just, you know, Azathoth worshippers believing that Azathoth is at the, you know, the centre of all creation and Nyarlathotep worshippers believing, well, obviously, he created everything. But it's you know, even different sects within the, the worship of Nyarlathotep believing completely different, incompatible things.
1: And that makes me think that the different worshippers, as with the real-world religions, some will worship one god and give credence to the others. But some will worship one god, and that's the only god. And the others are just impostors, or demons, or idols of false worship. You know, because we tend to sort of think we've got this Cthulhu pantheon, and every Cthulhu worshipper is going to nod to all of them, but... I
0: don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah, I mean, what happens when, for example, someone who believes in Cthulhu because they've seen the idols, they've heard him in their dreams, encounters someone who has gone to Kenya and performed rites there and met the god of the bloody tongue and actually seen it in person. The two of them meet and it's sort of, well, my god's real, but your god's not, and it's instant holy war. <laughs> this puts me in mind of something Sandy Peterson
1: said when we interviewed him for the Call of Cthulhu story a number of episodes back that as a Mormon, Lovecraft's stories were quite easy to buy into because they didn't have all that Christian trapping that his religion didn't buy into, hmm. such as the use of the, the crucifix and so on as, well, a, as a holy symbol against vampires. There wasn't another version of an established religion that was uh, being effective against these mythos beings. Yes. So it was easy for him to buy into, because it wasn't negating his it wasn't impacting on his religion. I think. Whereas, you know, the traditional werewolf and vampire stories, I think perhaps he sort of implied that 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 was a bit of an issue, which I th- I thought was an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I were a worshipper of, I don't know, let's say I'm a worshipper of Dagon or Cthulhu or something, would I be bothered about the real world existing religions such as Islam and, and Christianity and so on? Well, probably not, because I'd see those as just totally false religions. They're not a threat at all, because there's no, you know, Christian God or anything like that. I know that because I worship Cthulhu. You
0: mm. know, it's, it's not like, you know, you go down to the local church, someone summons up Yahweh and gets them to throw down lightning bolts and blow up the unbelievers. no.
2: Down the road at the local uh, cult of
1: shub then maybe that might happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. are a threat. I mean, if I if I do credit the whole Cthulhu pantheon, yeah, maybe those other cults actually, you know, interfactional kind of cult warfare could be pretty active. I think.
0: And also, we've got this idea that comes up more in Lovecraft's letters and some of his revisions of there being you know these um, familial relationships uh, between different members of the uh, the Mythos pantheon. And this strikes me as being the kind of thing that could lead to all sorts of dissonant beliefs and heresies and, mm. you know, sort of shub is clearly the wife of Hasta. No, no, she's the wife of Yogg-Sothoth. No, Hasta. No Yogg-Sothoth. And, yeah.
2: what, what do you mean shub the uh, procreation goddess or goddess of uh, birth? No, ask She's the one that keeps sucking up all this biological
0: material. Why do you keep part. calling her a she? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, so, like, act like Natchez a man? What the hell? And let's not get into the whole <laughs> Star Tree debacle oh, yeah. exactly. well, Paul was
2: saying about branches of the Cthulhu cult oh. yeah if they start using that to fend off the old ones they'll be fighting off
0: with their bare hands <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what else do we see in real world religions that we can take for our Cthulhu Mythos gaming
0: Another aspect of faith is the fact that in a lot of religions there is a a sort of initiation process. This tends to be more in mystical religions um, or in some perhaps slightly newer ones. The idea that the overall truth of the universe is is too complex for the human mind to just grasp immediately or that you need to have the right context to understand it or the right life experiences – that there is this, this slow process of initiation, this unveiling of mysteries. And it strikes me that that would work very, very powerfully for a mythos cult. If we look at the idea of one existing in the real world and recruiting people, then like certain real world religions that shall remain nameless it might start off as something fairly benign like a free personality test and that you know, once your foot is in the door you start learning more and more about the cosmology and the truth behind the universe and get exposed and gradually learn enough to contextualise these things and understand them and be transformed by them
2: I am never looking at Myers-Briggs the same way <laughs>
1: but you mentioned initiations there i I thought you were sort of going to go down the route of like baptism or the various ritualistic things circumcision or or various things that are done to people or they they participate in now what might happen in a cthulhu mythos cult (laughs) if somebody either of their volition or sort of forced upon them as children or whatever
0: Yeah, if you're taking particularly Christian or Catholic or Anglican rituals Mm. um, that have got very different connotations in in a mythos sect, the whole idea of the Eucharist and transubstantiation becomes absolutely fucking terrifying. Mm. You're bringing something alien within yourself and letting it transform inside you and letting it transform you as part of your sacrament. But there are all sorts of rituals that people go to their their churches or their their temples to participate in. They're obviously ones of worship and devotion, but there's all the major life events that make up human existence that religion tends to give people a lot of structure for in their lives. I mean, even those of us who aren't believers still end up going to church or churches an awful lot for things like weddings and funerals and baptisms. And I don't see why a mythos sect should be any different there. Why would you not commemorate rites of passage, you know, the equivalent of your first communion, your your first sacrifice or whatever, or, instead of a coming-of-age ritual, a celebration of when your gill slits grow in?
1: <laughs> I've got my first set of robes, Daddy! <laughs> Although, also, like I've been to various religious ceremonies accompanying friends or as, like, you know, invited to a wedding of another religion. Imagine that some distant relative has invited you to the wedding of his son, and uh, you go along and he's marrying this girl, you know, from Innsmouth. And you go along, and, you know, it's like a Cthulhu Mythos wedding. Yeah. One side of the church has gills, the other one doesn't. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or, or,
0: or you know, you get that thing that you do sometimes where people, you know, from two different religions marry, where they have two separate ceremonies. Where, you know, perhaps you go along to the church and you have Catholic wedding and so on. And then later you all go down to the coastline for the other wedding. Indeed. But as we mentioned, I mean, there are other important rituals that the churches carry out for their practitioners, particularly you know, revolving around birth and death. I can see sort of baptism and and birth rituals being really important for, you know, say, the Esoteric Order of Dagon, where it is all about procreation. (laughs) It is about the spread of the Deep One bloodline. (laughs) So I would have thought that births would be causes for huge celebration and ritual there.
2: And the cults or the worship of Mordigian in um, The Charnel God, the Clark Ashton Smith story, um, says that there are very specific rituals that must take place when anyone dies in Zulbazair. The body has to be taken to the Temple of Mordigian, no exceptions.
0: And I can see all sorts of weird funeral rites evolving within mythos saints, sometimes for practical reasons, that perhaps you know, you're know you worried about the bodies coming back afterwards. Maybe there are things growing within them that, that should not be allowed to walk around. In which case, yeah, there may be proper rites for disposing the bodies just to make sure they stay dead. Alternatively, I, I can see, for example, a sect of Shubnikarath where... They, they, it's, it's sort of a witch cult, and there's wisdom that's spread throughout, uh, throughout all the practitioners, and whenever someone dies rather than losing their wisdom, perhaps you know everyone in a very devout manner consumes the corpse. they each you know cut off a bit of the flesh and, and devour it, and between them bring that dead celebrant within their own bodies, keeping them within the sect. That'd really piss off Mordig.
1: Now I guess in the real world, look into real world religions once again, most adherents to a religion are in it because of happenstance of birth. If we're born in a certain country or a certain community or to a family, we tend to have the religion of that family or area. What about evangelical religions that, that go out and spread the word and try and bring in new members? So we see this with people knocking on the door they have TV channels in the
0: states, it, and, mm. yeah, on TV and radio as well. Yeah, certainly. But but it's yeah, it's not something you tend to see very much in Call of Cthulhu or, or in Lovecraft in general, except in I, I've seen it done, you know, very much as jokes and you know, yeah. people, people doing YouTube videos of you know Cthulhu missionaries going around spreading the good word about the Necronomicon and so on, which is all very funny. But if you're trying to do something like this in a serious game, how, how would you? Would they want to? I think so. Um, I
1: don't see why not. Yeah. But okay. it's a tenant of their belief, isn't it, that evangelic is part of their duty to spread the word. And another thing we also see are people stood on street corners and outside shopping centres preaching aloud or just sat there with some leaflets in yeah. Buckingham. They just seem to sit on deck chairs next to a bunch of leaflets. There. <laughs> but, you know, that that's their deal. Fair enough. I don't know. I can't, I'm i not sure if I'd imagine the Cthulhu cult doing that because we kind of see the the members of the Cthulhu lulu devotees taking that much more secretive stance like we talked about with modern day cults.
0: Well this is, goes back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago with uh, the slow unveiling of mysteries that perhaps an evangelical form of a Cthulhu sect would use false fronts or mm. you know, at least just dangle little bits of what they're about I could see for example the esoteric order of Dagon or something like them presenting themselves as being you know all about nature is almost like a new age religion that you know, you're becoming one with the sea, you're becoming one with all the life that's out there. You're getting back to the roots of where all life came from, there out in the water. It's only after you learn more and more of the mysteries that you might even hear the word Dagon for the first time. Mm. And of course, there are other forms of community outreach that churches and religious organisations carry on. Uh, there's missionary work and um, the, the one that I keep coming back to, and there's an organisation called Narcanon. It, it's Along the same lines as things like Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, Narcotics Anonymous, it's a self help program uh, for people with drug dependency issues. It's also run by the Church of Scientology and is used as a fairly aggressive recruitment uh, tool. It wasn't until fairly recently, I believe, that the church was even that open about their involvement with the group, they, they sort of kept a remove. It, it, it wasn't branded as being part of Scientology. You know, it was its own thing. But coincidentally, once you were there for a while, you, learn, you started learning a bit more about Scientology. Mm. And yeah, again, I can see mythos cults perhaps recruiting in similar ways.
1: Well, I can see them wanting to target certain types of individuals. So people who've perhaps lost hope with the world as it is, people who've been through traumatic experiences, people who are down on their luck, and people so on. People with
0: mental health problems. Yeah. yeah.
1: One might raise the issue of brainwashing. You know, whether that's a credible term or not, but it's perhaps one that we could certainly apply within the
0: game. And there are a number of techniques that cults use, um, real-world cults, to indoctrinate and, and recruit people. This is a fairly big topic, so I won't go into it now. But when we do an episode later on cults, then yeah, you know, th- this is something we will delve into. There are a number of you know really tried and established techniques that just downright work for indoctrinating people. Yeah, you know, involving things like sleep deprivation and social isolation and what's called love bombing, which is just giving them lots of constant. Positive reinforcement and letting them know that they're part of this new community. And, you know, all, all of these things really work for changing someone's mindset in a very short period of time.
1: Your hair looks nice today, Scott. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was trying to love bomb him.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Beard looks it's silky. It was so nice when it was green. <laughs> <laughs> Another part of evangelism, of course, is missionary work. Well, I mean, the idea of going out into you know, other communities and taking the word out to them. And it strikes me that a lot of mythos sects are effectively alien ideas and beliefs that you know, non-human missionaries have almost brought into the human world. Again, this might be a contentious way of looking at it, but this has been a way of establishing cultural dominance. That if you're going as a colonial power into a, a new area, getting the, the local people to follow your beliefs, to abandon their old ones, to you know, then become part of your religious power structures, gives you a very tight degree of control of them. Hmm. And it, it almost strikes me that you can look at mythos sets as a form of alien colonialism coming here and, and colonizing the minds of human beings.
2: Now, one thing I'm very envious of, especially when looking at the various mythos sects, is that there are some pretty wonderful places that you could get to go on a pilgrimage. You could get to go to the court of Azathoth. You could get to fly off on the back of a to Yogoth. You could end up wandering into Carcosa and having a good long dance at the court of the King in Yellow. You've got all these wonderful places where these beliefs have their origins from. They come from a physical, tangible place. Now, in the real world, you've got pilgrimages to Mecca, you've got pilgrimages to Jerusalem, or to, uh, in relation to individual saints, you could go to particular places where there are the parts of them
0: are known to be buried. There's loads,
2: loads of examples, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, and actually, that's an interesting thing that pilgrimages serve a number of different purposes in mainstream religions. Yes, it can be an act of devotion, like going to Mecca. Going to Lords, on the other hand, yes, I mean that's an act of devotion, but you're also probably going there because you want healing. Mm you could perhaps see mythos sects doing similar kinds of things alternatively there there may be smaller scale pilgrimages you know to holy sites places that are on this earth that have been touched and changed where you can have transformative experiences where maybe it is healing maybe it's new insights into the true nature of reality but there is something special about this place Mm. that when you go there you will be changed by it
2: this is where Al Hazred wrote the necronomicon
0: yeah exactly that kind of thing or this is the market square where he was sucked up into the air and and exsanguinated, mm-hmm. you can still see the bloodstains over there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: souvenir program, $5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Take a you. photograph. <laughs> love you, long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, the only souvenir program that doubles is a mythos <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> Cheap, though.
0: And I suppose if you had um, a religion that some of the holy sites were in the dreamlands then you know, the the pilgrimage wouldn't even necessarily have to be a physical one, that it could be you know, done through dreaming or you know, through astral projection.
2: Well oh, the, the big one there and the obvious one is Kadath. Yeah. Yeah, or through these drugs. Now there's another aspect to religion where it is just means the acquisition of knowledge and maybe in a Cthulhu sect term it would be, hey I want my Cthulhu mythos score to go as high as I can.
0: What parallels do we see with
2: that in real world relig- religions?
0: Um, well, what we see is mystical religions or mystical sects within religions, so like the Sufis within Islam or like Gnostic Christianity. These are people who perform practices and rituals that are designed to give them direct experiences of, of the divine or the transcendent, to try to lead them towards some form of enlightenment and cosmic knowledge. Uh, yoga. Yoga is another example. In yoga, you know, the, the word means union, and the, the goal of yoga ultimately is union with the, the cosmos, which... You know, breaking down the barriers between you and the rest of the world—that moment of ego death, where you know the the, the the self that perceives itself as as the self isn't there anymore, and you are part of the same creation as everything else.
2: I think the parallel in the mythos there would be passing through the ultimate gate and communion with yogg Sothoth to realise your soul is a shard that is spread over space and time.
0: Yeah. Or alternatively, just hitting zero sand. I can see that being almost the goal of of mystical arms of of mythos sects, that by accumulating knowledge of the mythos, by direct experience of mythos entities and mythos gods, travelling to other realms psychically, and and gradually eroding away those human parts of your mind, those human concerns, you reach that glorious moment at zero-san where... That the difference between you and the mythos isn't there anymore that you are part of a greater continuum, this eternity of space time, this thing that transcends human understanding and human existence You embrace
2: uh, the fact you are but a grain of sand floating on a black sea of infinity
0: Exactly
1: The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show
0: The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on BlasphemousTomes.com. Thanks for listening. Once again, we would like to thank you wonderful people who have backed us via Patreon. The money you give us keeps the good friends of Jackson Elias going. It pays for all our running costs, allows us to buy the occasional new bit of equipment, and yes, generally fills us with a sense of being loved and wanted. So, thank you. Thank you to each and every one of you. And we have a, a few new people to thank this time.
1: We do, indeed. At the $1 level, we have a thank you going out to Jacob Derby. Or Jacob Derby. We're not quite sure on the pronunciation there. Yes, well, thank you very much, Jacob. Indeed, thanks, Jacob. I'm hoping that's it for this week. No. I
2: keep hoping. No, no, it's not. Oh. For some bizarre and still as yet unknown to me reason, maybe they're just masochists, I don't know, there's a certain group out there that when they pledge $5 an episode, they receive some kind of audio torture. Some people, like Paul, call it singing. I'm sure it's banned against the Geneva Convention.
1: They do it because they love you, Matt. Oh... Well, oh, I figure boy. they do. <laughs> Maybe actually they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> that would
2: explain so much. Oh.
0: No, I'd like to think that, that they are inspiring us to create new and undreamed of forms of, of artistic expression.
2: I take a D6 San hit every time I do this.
1: <laughs> and indeed, for their kind donations, they do receive a copy of the Blasphemous Tome, they've received two copies of the blastmaster. Well, indeed, at the $5 level, they get a signed copy and a regular copy. Now, you see, that bit I can understand. <laughs> and if you too wish to donate to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the cutoff point for receiving this year's fanzine is going to be the end of the year.
0: Yes, just to explain, the Blasphemous Tome is this annual fanzine that we produce. There's bits of it that are fairly self-indulgent, where we talk about uh, the the podcast and some of the things that have gone into it. There's the occasional review, and um, this time, for the first time, there is a fully statted-up Pulp Cthulhu
2: scenario in there. And how to torture your dice if they don't comply. Yes, yes,
1: there is that.
2: I'm still working out how to get mine to comply, because everything I've thrown at them don't bloody work.
1: And if you want to find out how to get that, then just follow the links from our website,
0: blasphemoustomes.com. Well, the first recipient of our sung thanks is uh, Geoffrey Wrinkle. So, thank you very much, Geoffrey.
2: Oh, boy. Thank you very much, Geoffrey. Thank you, Geoffrey. Thank you. Thank you. Jeffrey. Jeffrey Many thanks, Jeffrey Winkle. Our second wave of audio torture goes out to Jason Ginnicky. So, thank you very much, Jason Thank you, Jason
0: Yes, thank you, Jason
2: Thank you, Jason
0: Let's take a little break from all that horror and hear what's been going on on social media.
1: Yes, our old friend Frank Delventhal over on G Plus has commented on our episode about the shunned house. He says, The idea about the mist, the people who breathe in the greenish misty vapours, have taken up both personalities. Some of the thing and also a bit of the victims. So they have a battle in themselves. Sadly, none of them are their own personalities.
0: Yeah, I like that idea. That could almost be the the opening of the Call of Cthulhu scenario, that you have encountered something like the, the creature in the Shant House. Maybe you're even the ones there who did battle with it. You, you've poured the sulfuric acid down there, you've destroyed it, all these vapours have come up. But you've just breathed in some of its memories. And then the following morning, you have all these people who were consumed perhaps 100, 200 years ago, sort of waking up in different bodies in a time they don't recognise.
2: So every time that you look at your elbow in the mirror, you just scream and take a sand hit. But you've got a flamethrower, so it's all good. You can I'll, combat it with that. I was going to say, good job they've got a flamethrower,
1: right? <laughs>
0: yeah, but if they're from a couple of hundred years ago, they wouldn't know what a flamethrower was. No, but the people who did
1: the thing in the cellar.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the whole idea is that these oh. are the people who breathed in the vapour. Oh, I
1: see. But they've yeah. got a the gas mask. The industrial gas mask. No, the military-grade gas mask. That would explain
2: how Scott's been able to get the green off his skin, but the beard that would have poked out from the gas mask was still green. Indeed. Mm. See the aforementioned picture.
0: Or alternatively, I could post the other picture, which is the day after. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The look of horror. Oh, my God. (laughs) Green beard
2: the pirate. It's not easy being green. Also over on G+, Daniel Carroll has a bit to say in regards to the Migo. Yay, hey, I like these guys. In regards to the classic gothic horror being given a mythos spin, the first thing that came to mind was the Migo, with their surgical prowess creating a Frankenstein's monster of sorts, possibly as a body for a brain that no longer wished to live in a case. Without any spoilers, that's like a, <laughs> that's like a film I've watched fairly recently.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it also reminds me a little bit of one of Paul's scenarios. Oh, yeah. But yes, yeah, I think that's a, a, a cunning idea. Plenty of horror to be had from that, particularly if the person, again, doesn't necessarily know what's happened to them. I mean, let's say that you you do have someone who's been so sanity-blasted by the experience of having gone into a Migo brain cylinder, that the Migo has constructed this new body for them. Maybe, you know, it looks close to being human it is a bit of a patchwork there's perhaps a slight uncanny valley effect but it certainly doesn't look like the person they used to be before what happens when they go around and try to reintegrate with the people they knew
2: i think there was an interesting article in i think it's machinations of the mego um the eyes only book for delta Mm. green where there was options of so you're a brain in a jar what life have you got now where they were explaining about how you could build a body. Put the brain jar, brain jar inside and and so forth and yeah how he could try and integrate it. It was no, nah, you're basically going to go fucking insane really quick. It's there's no point. Just shoot the brain.
1: But bring on the robots, right? And the the mechs and things like that. You could just stick the brain in the jar in one of those and they can operate that.
0: Uh, potentially.
1: Presumably. Yeah, it's all very future armor then. Yeah.
0: Or alternatively, go back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Take the brain out of the jar, have it consumed by the thing in the basement of the shunned house, then pour some some acid in over it, have everyone breathe out the vapours, and then you're all the brain in the jar.
1: How much more straightforward could it be? (laughs) It's a flawless plan. How to put your consciousness through multiple changes and still be insane at the end (laughs) end of it. (laughs) So to wrap up, let's have some final thoughts about the mythos as religion.
0: Well, based on the discussion that we've had so far, do you, for a start, accept the fact now that that mythos sects fit the model of a religion? And if so, based on, on what we've been talking about, how would this affect the way that you're likely to use them in your games now?
2: I'd say they show a lot of parallels. I don't think that they're necessarily explicitly the same thing. But you could draw elements from one and very easily put it in the other. And it also gives them a bit more of a human slant. It's something you can use to thresh out, I think as Paul said, that third dimension. So that they don't necessarily represent all 2D cutouts of cultists in robes going around killing people with knives. That suddenly they have a lot more depth, intricacy and believability to them.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think that the feeling of making them more convincing and real and rounded as opposed to the very two-dimensional thing that I often feel about the the Cthulhu cultists, not giving them just short-term goals for that scenario, sort of thinking of them having existed for tens of years or centuries and perhaps that they're not necessarily going to wrap up with this scenario or campaign. Perhaps they're, they're going to be something that's going to exist for a long time.
0: Yeah, I'm very much inclined now to think of of mythos sects as being religions, certainly fitting the patterns of religion we've discussed, because uh, religion is such a broad thing anyway that it's pretty difficult to come up with something that doesn't fit within that model. Yeah, as far as how it would affect how I'd use them in the game, this has certainly made me think a lot more about recruitment and about the way that someone might become a cultist in the first place. And also about the general effect that would have on their lives and the lives of the community around them. The fact that religions don't exist in isolation, they exist as part of a culture. They exist as part of a community. With a mythos sect, you know, th- that's going to lead to some very, very weird things, as the kinds of things that people turn to a religion for are now served to them by something alien.
1: So in a nutshell, I think the mythos as religion is, for me, a pretty easy buy-in. Oh, definitely for me.
0: Yep. I, I think this is one of the few times we've all agreed on something.
1: least because... The stars are right. Well, that's it for this episode, so it's a praise Cthulhu from me. It's an enlightened cheerio from me. And it's a <laughs>
0: yeah yeah
1: farewell from me. Hello
0: Blasphemous com. Now that you've all embarked upon the first step of your journey of enlightenment I will now begin to initiate you into the greater mysteries
2: So this is where the brainwashing starts, yeah?
0: Oh, it started a long time ago, yeah. Matt
2: About two hours ago
0: So, <laughs> 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 oh, I think we should. Hey, 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 except it's Jeffrey. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho! Christ.